Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word and just trust that our time in it would be your sovereign orchestration of your good and perfect plan that you have chosen to manifest in this church. And so we are dependent wholly on you. We pray for your spirit to work, not only in my speaking, but in all of our hearts, so that Christ would be exalted, you would be honored, and we would be satisfied in you. So strengthen our faith, encourage us in our walk, and make the truth of your word clear to us so that we know how to live it and what to do, and make our pursuit of Jesus our great joy. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so today's text in 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 14 is two texts in one in that it is the end of our Christmas series on the appearing of Christ, while also a continuation of what we were doing before Christmas, which is an exposition through 1 Timothy. So we pick up in 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 14, that means next week we'll be in 1 Timothy 6, 15, um, but we're also going to wrap up our Christmas sermon series on the appearing of Christ. So we have addressed the appearing of Christ in Old Testament Christophanies, in his death and resurrection, and in his birth, and today we will glance at the future appearing of Christ, his second coming or his return. However, Paul does not teach us any details about his second coming, about the return of Christ. He only references it. So he's just going to reference the fact that Jesus is coming back and, and that it's something that we're to look forward to and that it's something to be watchful about. And we can gather up all those truths from other texts in the Bible that tell us to anticipate the return of the Lord, to look for his return, to be watchful um, and anticipatory for his return and excited about him coming back. Um, but Paul doesn't dive into the return of Christ, more so he digs into what we do while we're waiting for the return of Christ. So by making a reference to the appearing of Christ, um, Paul states the return of Jesus as like a matter of fact. And this therefore serves as like a reference and a motivation for the church. And this fact that Jesus, that Jesus' future return is validated by previous facts upholds, or, or the fact that other promises have been fulfilled in Christ, we now have a promise of a future hope that we haven't seen yet. And because we see God fulfill past promises, we have this assurance of future promises also being fulfilled, right? So in the Old Testament, Jesus appears and we're promised that he'll come again in the flesh, and he does. And then he comes in the flesh, confirming what we believe. And then he promises that he'll die and rise from the dead. And then he does rise from the dead. So we can confirm that he fulfilled the promise. And then he makes another promise that he is going to come back. And because he fulfills all past promises, we know this assurance of future promises will be fulfilled. So what we'll see today is what the man of God, is the words Paul uses, the man of God ought to be doing while eagerly awaiting the coming of the Lord. And what it is that we are to do is fight. 
not each other, (laughs) the enemy. And what the enemy will do is anything that prevents you from fighting, including convincing you that the fight is already over. Now, just hold on to that thought for a second because I'm going to come back to that at the end. What the enemy wants to do is convince you that the fight is already over. Now, a lot of Christians would stop there and say, but isn't it? Isn't that what Christ has done? We'll get to that later. And ultimately, the answer to that is yes, duh. But we want, we want a complete picture of biblical truth. And so what the enemy does is he hammers one side of biblical truth to manipulate by excluding others. And what that does is prevents you from doing the very thing that you are commanded to do. And so we'll see what that command is here in verses 11 through 14. So in verse 11, Paul says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Now in the Old Testament, this uh, phrase, O man of God, or the words man of God, were used 70 times in the Old Testament. And every time it was used in the Old Testament, it was a reference to, or about, or concerning a particular man, a human, who spoke for God, often prophets. So these were the mouthpieces of God. And now Paul is taking that Old Testament reality and applying it to Timothy, because what does Timothy do? He's the pastor at the church, and he is the one who speaks God's word to the people. So Paul isn't saying, hey, Timothy, because you're the pastor of the church, you are identical to an Old Testament prophet speaking for the Lord. It's not what Paul's doing. Paul is hearkening back to that Old Testament reference as a means to show Timothy, like, hey, you have an important job here, which is to teach the truth of God's word. God already said the words. We simply have to repeat them and declare them and explain them and work through them and be in them. And so in the, old, in the New Testament, this Old Testament, Oh, man of God phrase is only ever used of Timothy. So it's used of multiple men in the Old Testament. Timothy is the only one who gets this title in the New Testament because of Timothy's particular role. And Paul also says, but as for you, at the beginning of verse 11, referring specifically to Timothy, giving this letter that uh, personal touch of communication between Paul and his young pastoral apprentice, this letter It serves the elders of the church well. We've talked about that as we've worked through this letter, how the elders would be gleaning off of this letter from Paul. They would have read it too. It would have been, you know, Timothy would have used this in his teaching. Um, But Paul's directly writing to Timothy, even though others are going to benefit from it. It's a personal letter. It's a letter to Timothy as the pastor of the church, the elder Equal with the other elders, but first among equals as teacher. Now, calling Timothy a man of God is not only an encouragement, but it's a call to something greater. It's not only like, hey, Timothy, you got an important you know, role and I hope you're encouraged by it, but also recognize the title I just gave you. How important was that title in your Old Testament readings, Timothy? Like, Timothy knows the Old Testament. He grew up with a Jewish mother. He knows Scripture. And he even, Paul even references it in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and talks about how the Old Testament is, is uh, worthy enough and valid enough to bring you to salvation, as he says that to Timothy, implying that Timothy knows the Old Testament. And so by calling Timothy a man of God, he is more than just encouraging. He is telling Timothy, you have a great responsibility here. 
And part of that responsibility is not just to encourage you, but, but, to, but to call you to something better, something greater. Hence the command that Timothy must, as Paul says in verse 11, flee these things. Now, these things refer to the love of money and all that is associated with it. And we get that from the previous text that Paul just got finished writing. And Timothy is to flee from those temptations and sins regarding money. Why? I'm not going to dig into the whole money thing. We already covered that last time. But it's because he is a man of God, meaning a godly man does not put his confidence or trust in money that provides items of comfort because God alone is to be man's comfort and security. And so you can't claim to be a man of God and then trust in something other than God, which is Paul's warning about money. So Paul's like, just flee the love of money. And then Paul doesn't just give restrictions. Instead, he gives Timothy something to aim at by commanding him to Verse 11, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Now, righteousness means to do what's right. And doing what is right comes from godliness, which means to be like God or to have godly character. So righteousness and godliness are somewhat interchangeable, but only in the sense that they look alike. Because righteousness comes from godliness. Godliness is to be like God, is to be holy in essence. And righteousness is the acting out of that holiness. And from from godly character comes the righteousness of Christ that is installed in us by the Spirit who according to Galatians 2.20, puts Christ in us. And because of this, we can pursue righteousness as the expression of godliness. Not just godliness, but the godliness of Christ in us. And those are important distinctions to clarify that it is not, you are not godly, but you are. It's Christ in you who is righteous. It's Christ in you who is godly. And he has made us new. It's not just that I, you know, we, we, it's, it's really hard for us to kind of fathom um, the hypostatic union of Christ, the reality that Jesus is fully God and fully man. This concept of, of what to us in our mind is two entities distinct from one another, but in one, how are they one and how are they distinct? That's a very difficult concept for us to grasp as humans because we are so binary in our understanding of reality. And so... When, we, when this same difficult concept is applied to, to us as humans, it's really hard for us to grasp. You are a, an individual person, your own person with flesh, and that flesh is dead in sins. Not dying, dead. Decayed, rotted, rubbish. And then we get saved, and we get this something else. We get something new. We get Christ, and and, and, and this is the, the awesome picture uh, displayed in Scripture for us from Ezekiel 37 where, um, where we get this depiction of the valley of the dry bones where uh, Elijah sees the, the bones come to life. And the bones are dry bones, not just but like wet bones or like moist bones or like recently decayed or, or recently dead bodies is going to have um, the bones aren't going to be as 
dry, we'll say, right? And so the idea of the dryness of the bones indicates the length of, of, of time that had passed since they'd been dead. I mean, these aren't just like, oh, they're just soldiers who just died in battle and whoo, they're revived back to life. No, these are, the, the flesh and the meat is all rotted off. The, the tendons are gone and it's just bones. That's how old and dead this valley is. And what does Elijah see but God bring this valley of dry bones back to life where muscles develop and tendons are reattached and skin grows and and these become people again. And it's a vision right off of Isaiah 36 where we're given this new covenant promise of a coming Christ who's going to Put life in us. The Holy Spirit, 36, 27, Isaiah 36, 26, and 27, we're given this promise that the Holy Spirit will put life in us and cause life to be produced in us. It's, there's nothing we're doing. And the point of, of the visual that we see in the vision in chapter 37, Ezekiel, is intended to, to illustrate that point. Those dry bones don't just get up and go, I'm a dry bone. I'm deciding that I choose to have life today. I've just decided to love God. Bones can't do that. And that's the illustration. Is just as dead as those bones are, so also are we. That's the Old Testament illustration of the new covenant promise in chapter 36, that we are the dry bones. Dead. And then by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're given this new life. We are made into something new, a new creation. And then we have this, back to the, the reality of these two entities existing at one. Somehow we are ourselves and somehow we are in Christ. So we are still ourselves, but Christ is in us. And now we're this new thing. And we tend to think of ourselves as like, well, there's me and then there's Christ in me. And we separate these entities in our mind because it's very difficult for us to grasp this concept of us being one in Christ. But there is no distinction. We are distinct from each other. We are unique individuals. We have different abilities, minds, and thoughts, and whatever. But we aren't distinct within ourselves from Christ. Christ has renewed who we are. What we are living out today is a, called, a process called sanctification. And that whole purpose of sanctification is our effort in Christ, as we are in Christ. Not, it's not like... And Christ is in us. We can say both those things. We are in Christ. That's Ephesians. That's the, the theme of the letter to the Ephesians is that we are in Christ. And you could say one of the themes in 2 Corinthians is that Christ is in us. And so we are this new creation in Christ. And he is working in this decaying, dead flesh. He has made it new. He has secured that newness for the future, in our mind, because we live in linear time, that's a future event. In the time for a timeless God, who never changes, that that doesn't he doesn't experience the future the way we do, and so for him it's now. But our experience is every day we are working toward that promised, secured, and finalized version of a regenerated, restored, and resurrected perfect self that God has made us in Christ. Now, we might not have that tangibly in hand today, 
but that doesn't change the fact that it is absolutely secured within us. So the fullness of that perfect new self that we have not attained yet and we will not attain till glory is still fully available to our access today. And so trying to like process in my mind or maybe, or maybe this is hard for you or maybe this is easy for you, this concept that there's me and then there's Christ in me, those aren't separate things. I am in Christ. That's who I am. That will never change. It's my identity. There's something else moving me now. My brain isn't my brain anymore. It isn't the old brain. It's a new brain. It's a new brain that has Christ, the, the mind of Christ. Philippians chapter 2 verse 5 I have the mind of Christ and my heart, a new heart, Ezekiel 36, 27. Put a new heart, a heart of flesh in a soft, amiable, fixable heart that now has the word of God written on it. So I've got a new heart, a new mind. And this body, in a physical sense, just like my heart is not physically new, my brain is not physically new, but how, is my, how do I have a new mind if my brain's not physically new? Because I have a new spiritual mind and a new spiritual heart. And that means I have a new spiritual body, even though physically I exist in this old dead body. And so my whole objective as a Christian is to pursue my glorified self that is guaranteed and promised to me. Because I want to get as close to that as possible. Because that looks more like Jesus, and Jesus is who I want. And so that is the pursuit of righteousness. And, and when we have the Spirit who puts Christ into us, we can pursue righteousness as an expression of the godliness of Christ in us. And yes, it's Him working in us, but it's, not, it's no longer just Him and then us, it's we're one now. We work with Christ, in Christ, and Christ in us. It's a united function. And in that, with the clarity that there is a distinction between the old self and the new self, we have to recognize that and hold that in our pocket a little bit, understanding that that flesh still exists because it has a propensity to desire sin. And we need to keep it at bay and push it down and destroy that flesh. And that is what we call sanctification. And that is the fight that Paul is talking about when we get to the next verse. We see this in verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life of, to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, the good fight of faith is the fight in which the man of God is commanded to engage, and this fight is against the enemy. The Greek word for fight means agonize, which was used in reference to military and athletic endeavors. So their training, their hard work, their discipline, the cost it takes to become a great athlete, the cost it takes to become an efficient and effective military unit, I was watching a video the other day of this uh, guy who was, I don't remember which faction of the military he was. I want to say he was Army Rangers. And he was saying how, you know, there's the Navy SEALs and there's the Green Berets or I don't know, whatever else there is. You know, these elite groups within different factions of uh, U.S. military. And he's saying when they have trouble, they call us. 
And then you see the Marines are like, when they have trouble, they call us. And then, you know, someone else is like, well, when they have trouble, they everyone thinks they're the best. But the point is these guys explain the training and preparation they have. And they're like, we're the only guys that could go into a nation, into a country, and take out all the bad guys, establish a democracy, and install a new leader in that country in a year, six months to a year. Just a handful of highly skilled, highly trained men. You don't, you're not born with that. That takes a lot of training, a lot of discipline, a lot of hard work. That's, it take, it's, it's agonizing because hard work hurts, right? I remember growing up, all I wanted to do was play in the NBA. That's all I wanted. And I was convinced as a young boy that I would play in the NBA one day, just like every young boy who plays basketball thinks he's going to make it to the league. And I remember my cousin telling me there was this guy on the Wisconsin Badgers. So I grew up in Madison. So I was a huge, I'd go to Badgers basketball games. There's this guy in the Badgers team and he was an okay player on the Badgers team. Uh, he started for the, you know, a Division I school. So you're to be good enough to start for a Division I school. But he, he wasn't that good. You know, he's kind of like the fourth guy on the team. The Badgers weren't great. So, you know, this guy's not going to the NBA. We'll just say that. And my cousin tells me, I heard a story about this guy. He shot thousands of shots every morning. And then thousands of shots every night. He lived and breathed basketball. It's all he did. He practiced for hours and hours and hours and hours. And he's not even like a good D1 player. And I'm going, I don't put in that much time. I'm never going to make it to the league. And it just kind of dawned on me. And then I, I see these, uh, you know, these maybe uh, documentaries or, or short clips from like the greatest of all time. Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, whoever. Um, and, and the kind of work ethic that these men have and what it takes to be as great as they are. It's agony. It's hard work. They're fighting what they would call their good fight. Paul's saying the good fight is the word of God. That's what we're fighting for. And who are we fighting against? The enemy. So Paul's essentially telling Timothy that the enemy, Satan, and his legion of demons who are operating all over the world will not make this fight easy or fair, meaning it's going to be hard, it's going to be difficult, and it's going to cost you something because it always does. Do you think that Kobe Bryant got to be as great as he is? It didn't cost him something. It cost him hours. It cost him pain. It cost him muscle fatigue. It cost him exhaustion. It cost him time with his family. It cost him a lot of things. Do you think that these military elite units... Do you think those men sacrificed anything to be as great as they are? Of course they did. You think their families don't suffer their sacrifice? Of course they do. It costs something to fight a fight that is worth fighting. But Romans 8.18 says it is worth it. So as the man of God engages in the fight of faith and his enemy is clever, Satan is clever and deceptive, ill-willed and evil, that fight is going to be difficult. Because your enemy hates you, and according to Peter, is prowling like a lion in the tall grass, 
creeping up on you. You don't see him coming. He's always working in the dark and in the shadows, which is why we're to be like light. Ephesians 5.11, be like light and expose the darkness. Put a light on the enemy and they'll scatter like cockroaches when you turn the lights on because that's what they are. And Satan wants to be in the darkness and wants us in the darkness and he's gonna you know, like sneak, up us, sneak up on us in order to paw at you, in order to lick you to death, in order to cuddle you because he's a big cuddly lion cat. No, to do the one thing that lions are most innately designed to do, which is to tear you from limb to limb, devour you and eat you, to kill you. That's his goal. And this is why we have to be ready to fight. And this is why it's going to be hard. Hence the requirement for godliness and the pursuit of Christ. When I say pursuit of Christ, I equate that to the pursuit of righteousness, which Paul just told Timothy to do. So because of the enemy, because of how clever, deceptive, and evil he is, we have to pursue godliness and pursue Christ because Christ alone is our refuge from the enemy and our only source for all things pertaining to that fight. So we can't go at it alone. But with such hardships sure to ensue from this arduous challenge of facing a powerful and evil enemy, though the man of God, though the man is a man of God, he is still just a man, meaning we as humans, only just humans facing a supernatural, extremely powerful, extremely smart, extremely clever enemy who wants to kill you. Just think about that concept for a second. There is an enemy who wants to kill you. He is smarter than you'll ever be. He's more clever than you'll ever be. He is more deceptive than you'll ever perceive, probably. And he's not a physical human. He can move in the shadows, operate in spiritual realms, and do all kinds of trickery. That's a terrifying reality, which is tempered for us by this beautiful, beautiful truth that John tells us that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And if that's not true, then we're really in trouble. So we hang tight to that truth that, whew, well, that sounds terrifying to have an enemy like that, but it is relieving to know that he who is in us secures us. And he who tries to kill us can't. So it's a great encouragement and confirmation to have But we need more than encouraging words because we're just humans. We're just mankind. We need a prize. We need something to work for. We need something to motivate us. Why does Kobe put in all the hours? Why do these elite military men put in all the hours? There's a goal. There's a prize. There's something they're after. Kobe wants a championship or an MVP. Athletes work toward a prize whether it's a trophy or prize money or whatever it is. And and so also, Paul offers Timothy a prize in verse 12. He says, take hold of the eternal life, which means get a grip on the reality of what really matters. 
Okay, that's what that means. Take hold of eternal life means get a grip on what really matters. And what really matters is our eternal existence. Understanding the temporary nature of our current status and the future hope in Christ. And he goes on in verse 12, to which you were called and about which you have made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So we've already addressed Timothy's public confession in earlier verses. And here Paul is reminding, uh, reminding, of us, reminding us of it once again to bolster up Timothy's resolve to fight the good fight of faith by encouraging him with the prize, which is eternal life. So just as Christ is the means and the goal for fighting this fight, so also Christ himself is the prize. As eternal life is not just life that doesn't end without any suffering or sadness and, and only good and perfect things. That's all true too. But eternal life is more than that. According to uh, Psalm 1611 and Psalm 7325, eternal life is the infinite experience of perfected joy and pleasure in the presence of Jesus. I'm going to say that again. I want you to absorb those words because they're really, mad, they're really meaningful and they matter a lot to our life now, to our daily living. According to Psalm 1611 and Psalm 7325, eternal life is the infinite experience of perfected joy and the pleasure of the presence of Jesus. Now, there's more to it than just that sentence. So that's not an exhaustive truth about or, or, or the best summation of eternal life, but it is a beautiful one. His tangible presence is our reward. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, what we see now in a mirror dimly, we look forward to seeing him face to face. That's the aim. So Timothy now has the face of Jesus in a perfected state to look forward to as a motivation to continue to fight, knowing that it will be extremely difficult but that ought to be our same motivation as well. Looking to Christ, knowing that my goal is not just to be done with this life. My goal is to that in being done with this life, I will exist in, an, in a way that my sinfully warped mind, even with the righteousness and mind of Christ that I have now, still can't genuinely fathom my resurrected self without sin. To be untainted by sin at all. To have joy in perfection. To have every element of Christ-likeness perfected in me in a perfect physical body. In a perfect world where sin does not exist. There's no error. There's no mistakes. There's no fault. There's no moral decay. There is only perfection. To fathom that is, is difficult. And we can explore that forever and ever and we would find some really interesting and cool truths but the reality is that ought to motivate us because to think about having that perfected mind think about how much you love jesus right now you love jesus right now because he first loved you you love him because he installed his love in you therefore you can love him and think about how much you love him Think about how much you care about God right now. And that love is ruined, though perfected in Christ, is ruined by our sinfulness. So we don't express that love perfectly. We don't experience that love perfectly. We don't feel that love perfectly because our sin taints our love. And sometimes that love is greater and sometimes it's not as great. And it, we kind of go in this roller coaster of, in our sanctification of how we love God 
in a variety of ways and different experiences. But I, I know the people in this room and I know that, that I could say, like, I know how much you love Jesus. I know how much you care about Jesus. Now just imagine that your mind is no longer ruined by your own sinfulness, but it is completely washed away, which it is right now. But to tangibly live in the physical existence of that in our future eternal hope is just mind-bending. So to look forward to that moment when sin no longer dims the mind or the eyes and I can see the beauty of Christ in the full magnitude of his glory, not just in my mind, but physically in my presence. That will be a joy and a satisfaction you just can't know in this life. So if we can't know in this life, why do we look forward to it? Faith. That's what faith is. So what fight is Paul telling Timothy to fight? The fight of faith. Confidence and trust and assurance of that future hope and promise in Jesus Christ. That's what Timothy is looking forward to. That's not only his motivation, or that's not only his encouragement. It's, it's a motivation to go get the prize that is Christ. And in verses 13 through 14, Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who, is, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that Paul has established a motivation, which is the eternal presence of Jesus, Paul gives more specifics that further validate the assurance of Jesus' return by saying that though the fight will be challenging, there is an end to this fight because Jesus is coming back, which is why he says, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which tells us that everything that Paul's been talking about is this is what we ought to be doing while we wait. Now, there's other texts in Scripture that give us other ideas of things we should be doing while we wait. But specifically for Timothy, Paul's telling Timothy, this is how you should function while you wait. And it also confirms that there's an end to this. Jesus is coming back. You're either going to die or Jesus is going to return. But this fight will end for you one day. And when it ends, you will be in the presence of Christ. And we get... And what Paul says is both of those are worthy. Whether you die or Christ returns first, either way, fight the good fight because it's worth it. And if, if you die, that's great too. If you live, you get to serve Christ. And we get that from Philippians 1, 21 through 26. Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So we see two things. If he lives, he gets more Christ. He gets to pour into the glory of Christ more. He gets more opportunity to give more magnification to the glory of Jesus. But if he dies, he gets the gain of Christ himself. So Paul's like, this is a win-win. I either stay here and glorify Christ or I go be with Christ. Now he says, if I am to, he goes on in verse I think this is verse 22. I, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to, part, is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. That's important to know. To be in the presence of Christ, Paul says, that's better. 
So then why would Paul want to stay here? He says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. He's talking to the Philippian church. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So Paul's saying, it's better to go to be with Christ, but if I have to stay here, then I just get to glorify Christ by serving the church more. So Paul wants to die and be with Christ, but he also wants to follow the Lord's will, which is that he remains. And in remaining with the church, the church can grow and be sanctified and mature, and that magnifies God's glory. So Paul sees the value in both and determines that the only reasonable solution is not to wish to die, although he looks forward to death in a righteous way, not in a depressed way. So not to look forward to death, but to find unimaginable joy in knowing that you are doing God's will. Like that was the whole, that was, that was Jesus's life on earth. He says that over and over and over again as he walks on earth. My will is to do the will of him who sent me. He says that so many times. My will is to do the Father's will. I'm here to do the Father's will. I'm here to do the Father's will. I'm here to do the Father's will. All right, you're going to die on a cross. Okay, I'm here to do the Father's will. The night before, Jesus says, how about we don't do the cross? Jesus isn't scared. He isn't sinning. He is expressing his heart, which is... Do we really, are we really going through with this? And Jesus says to his father, not my will, but your will be done. And what we know is Jesus wills that he die because he says that he will give up his life on his own accord and take it up again on his own accord. He willingly gives up his life because his will is to do the will of the father. That's, I mean, that's a huge part of the Christian life. What does God want me to do? You can ask that question every second of your life. Staying around in this life, in this flesh, sticking it out, that's what Paul's doing. Paul in Philippians 1 is expressing the dilemma that's within him that is going to be a dilemma for Timothy as well, which is, this is hard, and I'd rather just, be, I'd rather just die. We see this in 2 Corinthians 1, 9 through, or 8 through 9, when Paul says that we went through such atrocities that we despaired of life itself. Paul and his friends went through such hard things, they were like, I'd rather be dead. That's how hard their life was. But he says that that was intended to cause them to, to uh, depend on God. So Paul sees the earthly in this life benefit of him not dying. It produced something good. And he's doing the same in Philippians, and he's doing the same for Timothy, that, you know, the, the fight of, the, to fight the good fight of faith is so hard, you're probably going to want to die some days. And just go be with Christ. Let's just get it over with and just go be with Jesus. But Paul says, you, we don't get to escape, though, because Jesus didn't escape. Jesus faced it head on. Now, we don't have to go through what Jesus went through because he did it for us. 
but he does say, pick up your cross and follow me. So we're going to follow him and we're going to do the same things he does, which is do the will of the father, face the hardships head on, trusting in God alone. And though it's hard and though we don't get to die and run away from our problems and just go be in the perfection of Jesus in the, in the perfection, the perfection of the presence of Jesus and just escape all of the hardship Rather, we must stay and fight. That, that's hard to do. But Paul says, it does produce joy and it certainly glorifies Christ. Now, the commandment that Timothy is to keep um, unstained is the entirety of God's word totality of revealed truth about God and Jesus, the spirit, the world, sin, humanity, all of it. And Timothy, verse 14, is to keep that commandment unstained and free from reproach, meaning he is to be faithful to the truth, teach and preach the truth, live the truth, not defect from the truth, administer with the truth, so that the gospel does not get a bad rap or get a poor reputation and cannot be lobbed against Christians due to our unfaithfulness to God and lack of good doctrine. And as, as further motivation, Paul tells Timothy that he is commanding him to keep this commandment, meaning be in the word, know the word, teach the word, love the word, the truth, the truth, the truth of God. Make sure, Timothy, that you are declaring this, declaring this, you know it, that you're in it. It keeps you connected to God. It's the tether. It's the tether between you and God. Remember that game we used to play? What was that called? Was that called tetherball? Tetherball, yeah, yeah, yeah. The pole, and then there's a string, and then a ball in the end. And you just, I never understood that game. I'm like, so I'm just going to here and smash a ball. And it's going to fly around and then come back and maybe hit me in the face. This sounds like a dumb game. I didn't like that. So I went and played basketball because I was going to the NBA. But anyways, uh, <laughs> so when you think about, when you hit that tetherball, if that thing's not attached to the pole, you're going to send it off into another universe. I mean, the way that middle school kids smash that tetherball, like it's all that matters in life. It's just, and so that, that string is tethered, that ball is tethered to the pole. I imagine that's why it's called that. And if it's not, it's going to fly away from its source of like gravity. And so that ball is like essentially like in a gravitational force to that pole and it can't escape the pole. That is the word of God for us. That is Christ. That is Christ to us with God. We are connected to the Father through the Son. And, we're, and the tether between us and Christ is faith. Faith. How are we saved? By faith and through grace, right? Faith is the tether, the, the, the rope between us and Christ. It's the attachment. It's the ticket. Because with faith, we get Christ. It's like the the tunnel that gets us to Jesus. And now there's this open access between us and Christ that gets us to him. And when we get to him, what do we get? Our perfection in Christ and the righteousness of Jesus, which is our ultimately our ticket into heaven. And so this commandment is, these are the things you gotta teach, Timothy, that, that you have to be tethered to the word and therefore tethered to God and tethered to Christ so that the church could be tethered to you and tethered to Christ and tethered to the word so that nobody leaves the gravitational force of God. But that the church would stay close to God and moving with God 
and led by his spirit and honoring and glorifying him. And so Paul gives Timothy this command to keep this command, the truth, in the presence of God and in the presence of Christ Jesus, which serves as accountability to Timothy. So he's kind of like mentioning like, hey, I'm going to tell you this, Timothy, in the presence of God and in the presence of Christ. Just so you know, God's watching and Jesus is watching. But it's not just about accountability. It's not only that God is paying, it, not just that God is paying attention to Timothy's activity, but that he also has the presence of God as his source of courage and strength and ability to fight this good fight of faith. So Paul is saying, like, in the presence of God, I'm telling you to this command, so you know that this is coming from God. God is watching. Jesus is watching. I'm watching. Keep teaching, living, following, declaring the truth. That's the command. And we're all watching you, Timothy. But it's not just this overshadowing like group of elders, God, Jesus, and Paul, who are looking down on Timothy, you better do what we say. It's not just that kind of like overshadowing. It's more of a helpful accountability like we're watching you, we're paying attention to you, and we, God the Father, God the Son, expressed through Paul's leadership to Timothy, is your only source of help, your only source of courage, your only source of strength to fight this good fight you must fight, which is why you have to stay tethered to the word because that's where your strength comes from. So think about that in your own life. I mean, I've said this many times from this pulpit. When most people come to me and they've got a problem and I say, what's going on? And they express their problem in not, not every case, but in a lot of cases. The first question I ask is really simple. Are you in the word? And I don't usually get an honest answer up front, but we get to it eventually and come to discover that not as much as they want to be or maybe should be. And it's like, I get that. It's hard. I get it. Not condemning people for not being in the word as much as they should be. But I always say like, all right, go spend a week in the word and come back to me and see if your problem still exists. Because half of our problems would just would be resolved by being in the word regularly. And I don't mean like, oh, that means that when I have a problem, oh, this person said this thing to me. What does the Bible say about that? Then we start cherry picking the Bible to find verses that tell us how to react to certain things in certain ways. And then we can find what we want to find in the Bible to do what we really want to do instead of doing what God's word tells us to do. So we kind of manipulate the Bible unknowingly to do what we want to do, what our flesh wants to do in situations. That's not the kind of Bible time I'm talking about. I'm talking about being in the Word so regularly, so consistently, so consistently, and so fervently and desirously that, that we are day by day, minute by minute, hour by hour, slowly transforming. The Holy Spirit is slowly transforming the mind that we have and turning it into the mind of Christ and turning our, softening our heart, growing compassion, learning gentleness, understanding truth, developing sound doctrine, understanding what love looks like in the Christian life. And all these things slowly just start growing and molding slowly, 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 every day, little bit by little bit by little bit by little bit by little bit. And then when a problem comes, you're ready for it. The problem is when we're not in the word, then a problem comes, we go, what does the Bible say? And we're like, oh, it says, hate that person. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna do that. Because I saw the word hate in the Bible. Therefore, I, you know, we just kind of like, manufacture some biblical truth or manipulate what's what we would call eisegesis, putting your own truth into the word instead of exogesis, exegesis, which is to pull the truth out of the word. 
and, and, and we, we kind of put our own meaning into a text and it, it kind of validates our sinful desires. So instead, the idea of being tethered to the word means being in it so regularly that it is already working on you so that when trials and difficulties and challenges and hardships come, you're prepared to face them. Now, Paul says that God is the one who gives life to all things. And he says that Jesus is the one who made a testimony in front of Pilate. So why does Paul add those elements? Why does he say of God, he's the one who gives life to all things. Of Jesus, he's the one who gave the testimony in front of Pilate. What Paul's getting at is that God is sovereign and supreme over all things, including the enemy. Therefore, as an encouragement to Timothy, that as he fights the good fight, he has the champion as his defender. And his victory is already confirmed. God gives life to all things. Who, God gave life to Lucifer, an angel who becomes Satan. God made him. Like that's a reminder to Timothy like, hey man, the enemy you're fighting is dangerous. But remember, your champion made him. What greater comfort could that be? And then Jesus, our savior, who is the champion in the flesh, faced the enemy face to face and won that battle and won that war and looked at Pilate and said, I am the king and I am the Messiah confirmed. And now Paul's telling Timothy, you can go into the battle with the same confidence that that God, that Christ has already done the thing that you don't have to do. You don't have to go win the war. It's already won. You just have to face the daily battle to the victory. And it'll be hard, but it'll be worth it. That is the essence of the Christian life as we await the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. To live our lives in the balance of two truths. I want you to hear this. In the balance of two truths. We live our lives in the balance of two truths. One, that the end is already secured. We are already perfected in Christ and our eternal life is assured to us. That is true. Two, that while we wait for the manifestation of that reality, our life on this earth ought to be one of battle against the enemy and for the righteousness of Jesus that he has already earned for us. That's called sanctification. That's the balance. I'm already secured. I'm already perfected. I'm already in Christ. I've already won. My eternality in the presence of God is already sure. But not yet. Not in my experience today. Not in the process of sanctification. It's already there, but I don't have the fullness of that experience in this life. It's promised for a future life. But all that comes with it is mine in Christ. It's all very, you can see how this is hard to like, what is that, how do I manage those things? So I'm going to try to simplify it and not go deep. We live in this balance. That's the, that's the, the Christian life, finding that balance. That though our eternity is secured in the victory of Christ, we must live out that victory through the challenges and hardships and difficulties that come with our sanctification. And if we are being honest with ourselves, we know that finding the perfect balance of understanding those two truths and living in the perfect balance of those two truths, that's half the battle. 
recognizing that it's the battle, uh, or recognizing that we have both these truths, understanding what those truths are, and then determining to live in a balanced way with those truths, that is half the battle. And once we have those truths balanced, there's a whole new battle that begins with the enemy. And his whole objective is to get you off balance. And if we're being honest, that's a reality for us. And that, for many of us, the hardest part is accepting this challenge and understanding it biblically and living it out faithfully. That's hard. It's hard to do. And that is why verses like these exist, to encourage you in the discovery and to strengthen you for those daily battles against the enemy who wants to keep you in bondage and slavery to your vices and to your addictions and to your faulty doctrine and to your desire for sin and to prevent you from pursuing Christ and all the goodness that comes with him. That's what the enemy wants. And the enemy is ready to fight you And he will, but he doesn't have to. If he's clever enough, if he's manipulative enough, he doesn't have to fight you. He will fight you. He'll face you in battle, but his clever device, and this is what I want you to hear, his clever device is to convince you that your current status in Christ is enough. Now stop. It is enough. Okay? It is enough. But he wants it to just be that. That you are just fine. There's no need for battle. There's no reason to fight. Jesus already won the battle. That's true, and yet Satan tells it to us. Why? Because he's leaving off other truths. It's exactly what he did to Eve in the garden. He said a true thing that God said. Except he left out some really important details because he's lying and deceiving and manipulative. And so one of the things that Satan wants to do is remind you over and over and over again, Jesus already won, Jesus already won, Jesus already won. You don't have to do anything. Which is why Paul says, in Romans 6, that's going to lead to sin. Which is exactly what happens. Which is exactly Satan's work. His battle strategy is, let's let's manipulate them so badly that they don't even enter the battlefield. That they're defeated before they even show up. And they get lost and wrapped up in their sin and destroy their lives. And so what the enemy's ploy is, is to convince us of one of these two truths more than the other so we are off balanced. Now he has got a lot of other tricks you know, this is just one of them. I'm not saying this is like his ultimate trick or anything. But to look at these two truths, I'm already secured in Christ, and I have to live out that security in my sanctification. Okay? Living in that balance. The already but not yet. What Satan wants to do is tip the scales, get you off balance, and say, hey, yeah, you know the already? He already did it. You don't have to, just, you don't have to do anything. Just fatalistically just live your life And let God do whatever he's going to do, and you'll be fine. Just remember, Jesus already did it. You don't have to do anything. And that reality is perpetuated throughout the American church like wildfire. That's everywhere. And it's super problematic. And by convincing you that Jesus already won and keeping you focused on that truth alone, you stay off balance, and he prevents you from doing what you were just commanded to do which is fight. Because if you 
only see the victory of Jesus and not other biblical truths, but only his victory, which I almost feel, it feels evil for me to even say these things because I don't want to like make the victory of Christ sound like a bad thing. It's not. But if it's the only thing you see, then you're not getting the full scope of scripture. Okay, we're not talking about justification here. I'm not saying like you have to, you know, the other, you got to fight and battle every day to earn your salvation. That's not what this is. In terms of your salvation, that is purely the work of Christ, only the work of Christ, just the work of Christ, period. Period. So we're talking about living the Christian life after you've been saved, after justification and in sanctification, that there is a balance between living in the victory of Christ and living in the sanctifying process of fighting this daily battle against the enemy. And the enemy wants to keep you off the battlefield and he does it by keeping you from fighting and he keeps you from fighting by, by tipping the scales and turning your focus only to one, one truth. Despite... The importance of that truth, and that's the cleverness of the enemy, is he looks at these, these truths and goes, well, which one's more important? <laughs> the victory of Christ alone, the glory of Jesus and the gospel, that he did it all on his perfect right. Christians love that. Yeah, of course we love it. It's true. It's the most profound truth that we have, that Jesus has done it all. And we can't do it, and we shouldn't do it. He did it. That's why we love him. That's why we worship him. It's all Christ. Satan knows we love that truth. And he manipulates it for us and gets us focused on that. He says, if I tell a bunch of Christians, work hard, work hard to earn God's favor, they'll be like, oh, that's a faulty gospel right there. They'll pick up on that so fast. They're not going to run for that legalistic gospel. So let's make the value of Jesus and his victory the only important thing to them. And they'll stop working which is exactly what God commands them to do. And if you've read the book of James, James is like, you can't have a relationship with Jesus if there's no work involved. They are connected. The faith and work are together. They exist. I'm not talking about justification, but in sanctification, they are together. So, so Satan knows this is a truth we love. And if we're going to exalt any truth, you better believe Christians are going to exalt Jesus' victory as the truth. And he manipulates us to get us off balance, to focus just on that and to forget about the reality that the Christian life is a hardship and a difficulty requiring many sacrifices and living a faithful life that can, is filled with challenges and that we got to fight in this life. That's hard to do. And Satan knows it and he knows our propensity for laziness and it's much easier to just go, eh, I'm saved, whatever than to fight. And that's where he wants us, to get to the, eh, I'm saved, whatever. When the Christian life should be every single morning, you get out of bed, you are prepared for battle. You are strapping on all of the armor of God and you are putting in your sheath the sword of the word of God and you are going to battle with the enemy daily. You are putting on the peace of the gospel. You are putting on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You are going to your Lord and Savior every morning in prayer saying, I need my general for battle today. Lord Jesus, help me. Like we need that every day, all day, constantly. That's the Christian life. Not easy. 
But we, you know, we can get just, off, just as much off balance the other way where we think we're earning it, we're earning it, we're earning it, we're fighting, we're fighting. It's me. Look at God. God, you see how good I was today? And God's like, I don't see how good you are at all. I see the goodness of Christ in you. So we can get off balance the other way too where we feel like our work is so valuable that we must be making God super proud of us. And that's why we have to be balanced with these truths. That we never forget that it is the victory of Christ alone and the righteousness of Christ alone which exists within me and, and he expresses by his spirit out of me. But I also know that I got to get up every morning and join my savior in the battle. The war is won, but the battle exists today and we're going to fight that battle only in pursuit of Christ. I'm not going to sit here and tell you, fight your battles, do the right thing, go. I'm not going to give you a bunch of tactical and tangible to-dos because then you'll go do them morally or legalistically. And you'll just be like, I did what Pastor Mark said. I woke up in the morning, read my Bible for five minutes, I prayed, and then I went and ate breakfast, and then I went and prayed again, and then I sat down and I read the Bible to my children, and then I did a Bible lesson with them, and then I went and met a friend for coffee. We talked about the Bible, and I did all these things. I did everything I was told to do today. I'm such a good Christian. I don't want to give you that kind of advice. What I want for you is what God wants for you, Christ. So just pursue Jesus. That's all I'll say. However you do it, however, everyone's going to do it differently. Our lives look different. Pursue Christ. Let him fight your battles through you. How you prepare for war, how you prepare for battle, how you face the enemy is only in Christ. Because if that other truth, that balanced truth of his victory is not present in our mind, then we'll try to fight that battle on our own as we'll be off-balanced. So we have to pursue Jesus, and in pursuing Christ, we are filled with the Spirit. And as Paul tells Timothy, the best preparation for battle is to have or to pursue Jesus, trust in him, and let him fight each battle through you with his righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we anticipate incredible works from you through us, for us, for your glory, and for the satisfaction and pleasure of our future promise, of our current promise of a future with you. And... Um, We anticipate that with such joy. And we have so much joy in the gospel today. And we just look forward to that eternal promise come true. But in the meantime, we're here. And we've got battles to fight. We've got days to win. We've got an enemy who wants to kill us. And we have you, a savior who's already won. A God who has secured our victory and then in doing so prepared us for battle and faces our battles for us and through us we cannot do anything alone so we call on you and depend on you trust in you and have confidence that you will act on our behalf for your glory as we face an enemy who wants to kill us So help us fight these battles daily, Lord, in your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.